This is the Simi Sarah Show On Demand. Subscribe now on iTunes. Listen to the show each weekday 10 to 2 on 980 CKNW and through the Radio Player app. Well, we want to talk about your politics, specifically your politics and how you talk about that with your partner. Uh, we're talking about this OkCupid survey where they ask people in relation to the election that's coming up and their dating habits, how much of a role the whole idea of exercising your right in a democracy plays in deciding who you date or how much of a role it plays in your relationship, period. So for our hot question of the day today, we want to know, how important is it to you that your partner cares about voting? Is it very important? Is it somewhat important? Or do you say, we don't talk about politics? I know, I know plenty of couples who that is the rule. Maybe they're on opposite sides of the political spectrum. And the easiest way to deal with that is, hey, we both vote. But I'm not going to ask you how you vote. Don't ask me how I vote. Lots of people make it work that way. So how important is it to you, though, that your partner actually cares about voting? Very important, somewhat important, or we don't talk about politics. So go to SimiSarah980 or at CKNW on Twitter to cast your vote on this. Be very curious to see these results as they come in. As well, you can email me, Simi at CKNW.com. How do you tackle this? I mean, not every pair of people who are in a relationship agree on everything, right? You compromise on stuff. You disagree on things. How do you deal with being different politically at your house? I'd be very curious to know. Tell me your story. Email me, simi at cknw.com. And as well, there is our buzz line, 604-331-BUZZ. That is 331-2899. But that's our hot question of the day today. How important is it to you that your partner cares about voting? You know, up until this week, BC was going it alone when it came to going after the makers of opioid drugs, companies like Purdue Pharma, you know, the makers of OxyContin. We launched that lawsuit last year with allegations that the companies, and more than 40 of them, should have known or did know that the drugs were too addictive and were finding life in the illicit market. Now, these are the drugs that have undeniably been linked to our opioid overdose crisis. And all over the world, there are now questions for the makers of those drugs about how they were marketed. For instance, in the United States, there have been numerous states pursuing the same argument. And this morning, a lawsuit got underway in the state of Oklahoma. It was against the multinational conglomerate Johnson & Johnson. Have a listen to this report from ABC News' Andy Field. Oklahoma is just one of 42 states suing drug companies with a claim those drug makers weren't honest with patients on how addictive their opioid medication was. The state says Johnson & Johnson should pay for two decades of rising opioid addiction. Purdue Pharma, which makes OxyContin, avoided today's court date by offering a $270 million settlement with Oklahoma. Now that is huge, but you heard what he said there. 42 states out of 50 pursuing a lawsuit like this. Here in Canada, we know that BC has unfortunately led the country when it comes to the number of people dying from opioid overdoses. And for several years now, we've had this public health emergency here. But now other provinces are seeing this problem increase as well. In Ontario, for instance, there were 726 opioid-related deaths in 2016. But last year, that number went up to 1,127. And what we are seeing in this country now is a turning point, a recognition that BC isn't the only province fighting this problem. Quebec launched a lawsuit last week targeting 27 pharmaceutical companies in that province. And then we heard this week that Ontario is joining BC in its lawsuit. So we wanted to find out why now. Why is Ontario getting on board with this? Well, Robin Martin is the parliamentary assistant to Christine Elliott, Ontario's Minister of Health and long-term care and made the announcement that the province is going to join BC. We had a chance to catch up with her a short while ago to ask why that is. Well, thank you very much for joining us to talk about this today. First of all, may I ask, why did Ontario make this decision now to join this lawsuit? Well, our understanding is that uh, BC commenced the lawsuit in August of last year, and we're getting to the stage where the first um, they've they've served all the uh, the parties that they had to serve, which I understand took some time. They're getting to the stage where they'll have their first date, uh, court date before the case management judge. Mm-hmm. 
Um, and, and that's, I think, scheduled for June. So we want to be there and be involved. Uh, we want to be involved from the beginning. Um, and so it seemed that this is, this is the apt time to do it. And certainly we want to pass the legislation that allows us to do it before our, our uh, legislature rises for the summer. Now, we've talked a lot here in BC about the impact of opioids in this province, but what has it been like in Ontario? Is this a, is a growing problem there? Yes, it is a growing problem, unfortunately, in Ontario. I think BC uh, started, had the problem before we did, uh, but we certainly have a significant problem here as well in Ontario, I think in other parts of the country as well, but really BC and Ontario are the most significantly impacted by the crisis. And, you know, it's had a huge cost, uh, uh, an enormous cost, really, both in terms of the life's lost and mm-hmm. and the impact on our public public health care system and the front lines of public health care it, it it really is devastating for people who are impacted and uh, we're taking a number of steps to to battle this crisis and to try to to make sure that we're doing everything we can to make sure people have help and are protected as much as possible and that includes going after uh, people who have contributed to the crisis. We want to make sure that they're paying their fair share of the costs. Right. So are you seeing overdose numbers increase as well? Yes, we are. I mean, I think BC still has um, a higher number of overdose deaths uh, uh, this year, mm-hmm. but we are closely uh, approaching the number that um, that BC has. You know, was there anything that Ontario could have done to prevent this? Because I know, like, for us, it's been several years of a public health emergency, warning other provinces. But was there, do you think, a feeling in other parts of Canada that this was a BC problem? Uh, I don't know. I mean, I don't think problems like this uh, can be contained in a single jurisdiction. I think people were hoping and praying it wouldn't uh, spread. Mm-hmm. But, um, you know, certainly people were aware of what was happening in British Columbia uh, and uh, and really feeling for the people in British Columbia having to deal with it. I, I don't think the solutions are that obvious. You know, there are a number of things you can do. You, you've opened uh, supervised consumption sites out in, in BC, in Vancouver, and we have as well uh, across Ontario. Um, we've just created a new model called a consumption and treatment service uh, site model, which is more wraparound services. So we're trying to help people when they do make the choice that they would like to stop uh, uh, using these drugs, that there is a way for them to find primary care help and rehabilitation and treatment right away. So it's sort of a wraparound model. Um, We're looking, you know, for best practices everywhere and and trying to improve. But BC was on the forefront of it, unfortunately. Mm -hmm. I think the rest of the country knows and can see, you know, that the problem is not one that can be contained to any one jurisdiction. Now, is Ontario, are you talking to the medical community at all about the, the prescribing of these opioids? Is there anything that's going to change in that regard? Well, we certainly have talked with the medical community about that. Uh, and I know that, uh, you know, steps have been taken to, you know, look at uh, are there certain doctors who prescribe more um, and what is the nature of, of their practice that they might need to prescribe more. Um, so we're looking at that. We're, we're sort of looking at everything we can do to make sure um, that uh, that we're, we're limiting uh, the supply and limiting the problem as much as possible. And what does Ontario hope to get out of the lawsuit then? Well, ultimately, we're, we're bringing the lawsuit because... Um, we want to be part of this this action. We want to, first of all, with passing the legislation, have the right to sue. Um, but we want to make sure that uh, we can recover past and future health care costs borne by our taxpayers due to opioid-related disease, injury, or illness. And we want to make sure that we can, as I said, ensure that those who contributed to the crisis help us to defer and, and um, pay, actually, help us pay for the fair share of, of their costs. Do you foresee other provinces perhaps joining as well? Yeah, I don't know the numbers statistically in other provinces at this point as to whether they have a, you know, as many, they, mm-hmm. uh, certainly they don't have as many. You, uh, BC and, and Ontario are unfortunately on the forefront of this crisis. So I don't know if other provinces would see it as... Um, as something that they should get involved in. It may change over the next year or so as as the crisis is spreading and, you know, the use of these uh, drugs are spreading. Um, it's, I hope <laughs> I hope that nobody yeah. else uh, has to deal with this problem, but I think, you know, it's possible that other jurisdictions, 
you know, probably based on population, you know, more than anything else, we'll have some of these challenges as well. And, and you may see other people joining into the litigation. You mentioned that you have to pass some legislation. What does that involve? What's needed here? Well, we've brought forward uh, a piece of legislation called the Opioid Damages and Healthcare Cost Recovery Act 2019. And if it's passed, it will allow us to take the, the further action to battle this. It'll allow us to have the right to sue uh, opioid manufacturers and wholesalers for their alleged wrongdoing uh, in order to recover the costs, as I said. And the act would also provide special special rules that are kind of technical legal rules uh, designed to facilitate the litigation process because it's a, it's a class action in British Columbia, et cetera. Um, so the, the act essentially would facilitate our participation in the suit. Okay. So you expect that to happen fairly quickly? Yeah. I mean, I think uh, our, our legislature is scheduled to rise on June 6th, so we hope the legislation will be passed before then. As I said, we'd like to participate in the case management conference, the first one scheduled in with with the judge uh, who's been assigned, and uh, that's in June. All right. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. That's Robin Martin, the parliamentary assistant to Christine Elliott, who's the Ontario Minister of Health and Long-Term Care. You know, seeing people walk around in downtown Vancouver with suitcases rolling behind them has pretty much become a normal, everyday thing. When you think, well, they're on their way to the hotel, they're checking in, they're checking out, they're going to the Canada line. Tourism has been undergoing a huge boom in our city, in our region, as a matter of fact. But some storm clouds are on the horizon, and we're going to find out why that is. Joining us now is Ty Spear, the President and CEO of Tourism Vancouver. Ty, thanks for joining us. Thank you. How good of a year is this in terms of tourism? Well, we think uh, 2019 will be another record year. So we've had a great run of record years each year since 2014, and we think 2019 will be another record. So that's great news. That's great news. But what's the problem? Well, the problem is um, that we are growing. We're in demand, and uh, we're a city on uh, with great momentum, and people want to come here. But the... Um, the challenge that we have is that our hotel supply is not keeping up with that demand. And in fact, it's under quite a lot of pressure. Uh, real estate, of course, is a huge topic in this city. Mm-hmm. And uh, it's very, very difficult to get attention um, for the development community, for the political community and others to say, hey, actually, it's really, really important that we make sure we have enough hotels for our visitors and for doing business and for other needs. So it's a it's a really important thing, but it's a really challenging topic. Yeah. How many more hotel rooms do you think we're going to need in the next couple of years? Well, I think the problem is it's not a it's not something we can deal with in the next couple of years. Of course, hotel uh, development is a, is a long term proposition to to get approval and to build and so forth. So we've actually looked at it over the next uh, twelve years. We did some planning out to twenty thirty. And we would expect we need uh, probably no less than 3,000 hotel rooms uh, in addition to what we already have. So we need to keep everything we have and add at least another 3,000 to really keep pace with what we think the growth of uh, our visitor economy will be. Are we even close to building that or getting around that? At the moment, no, we're, we're not. There, there is not... Um, there, there are not significant uh, hotel projects in the pipeline that would begin to make a, a dent in that. There are, there are a couple, uh, but of course we're always under pressure with, um, with potential real estate uh, opportunities that take away from our hotel stock too. So, we need to make sure we keep what we have, and, and we need to really, um, really stoke the flames for getting a, a hotel development agenda going in the city, or, or else I think we're going to have to say no to some visitors, and I don't think anybody wants that. Already, though, I, I was taking a look at some of the prices for hotels in this city. Like, we rank up there when it comes to expensive hotel rooms, don't we? Well, we have seen, we have seen price growth, and that would be expected when, when you're in demand. You would expect to see that, in particular, um, you know, as we move into the peak summer season. So prices have definitely gone up, and, and that, that would be expected. Having said that, when you compare uh, Vancouver hotel prices, even in the middle of the summer against some of our major international competitors, we're still very, very good value. Are companies interested in building hotels here in Vancouver? Yeah, we have had some interesting um, inquiries. I, I think there are some that, that look at the, um, 
look at uh, that as an asset class of real estate that makes sense for them, and they want to be in that. And we've seen, obviously, some developers do that. So there is interest, but, of course, there there are, uh, are other motivators, um, both economically and politically, that sometimes get people thinking about other types of real estate like residential. So we need to make sure that, that we create the right environment for developers to say, yeah, I'm interested, and I'm going to act on that interest, and I'm going to really make something happen. And we're losing the four seasons, aren't we? The Four Seasons will uh, discontinue service, I understand, at the end of January. So um, that's both uh, an issue for us in terms of, obviously, we lose those rooms, and and we want to make those rooms available to our visitors. And, of course, we lose a great brand. So uh, the Four Seasons is a a high-quality brand and and has been a great uh, part of our hotel fabric for many years. And it's a shame to be losing that. So I don't know what the future for that property is. Um, that's an unknown at the moment, but um, but in, in an ideal world, we would see a future where you know the Four Seasons brand finds a, a way to come back into our market. So, Ty, even if today a company were to say, "Yes, I'm going to build a, a new hotel in downtown Vancouver," when would we actually see the use of those rooms? Well, I would think it's uh, you know it's it's hard to envision a scenario that would be less than five or six years. I think if you wow. just, just right. understand. You know, development, you know, design timelines, development timelines, approval timelines, and then the, then the actual construction. You know, these things. You know, these these things take time. So, I think that's why it's really important that we get this issue on um, on everybody's list of things to be concerned about because it'll take time. It'll take a lot of effort now to affect something. You know, in in kind of a five year to ten year horizon. So we got to we got to get moving. I think it's important that everybody is aware of this and gets focused on it so that. We do see a situation in five or six years' time where, where we know we're moving the needle in the right direction. It's interesting, though, isn't it, Ty, though, because all this discussion about real estate and the market kind of being down, but here you have this opportunity. Are you kind of waiting for the market to recognize this and say, yeah, okay, let's do this? Well, no, we're not waiting. That, that's for sure. We're, we are taking advantage of, of all opportunities to have conversations, including this one, to, to make sure that the private sector and the public sector are both aware of the need to do this. Uh, I think we are we are starting to to get traction on that, so that's important. So we, we'll continue to do that. It's it's critical for our industry if we want to continue to be um, a growing industry, and and of course we do. And if we want to continue to make the very very substantial contribution that we do to Vancouver's economy, we've got to we've got to get serious about this. It is important that we deal with it now. And as one of the largest industries in the city, the last thing I think anybody wants is for us to feel like we're stagnating. Exactly. All right, Ty, thanks so much for your time. My pleasure. That is Ty Spear, who is the president and CEO of Tourism Vancouver, kind of sounding the alarm about the fact that Metro Vancouver needs another three to 4,000 additional hotel rooms in the next few years, next 12 years. There is a lot of talk on the environment front this week for a number of different reasons. There is a conference going on in Vancouver this week about clean energy. It's bringing together governments, private sector, international organizations from more than 25 countries. Uh, So there's lots to talk about there. But also, I think a lot of the, the discussion has focused on something that the Green Party leader Elizabeth May said this week. You may remember she said that Canada should rely solely on Alberta oil moving forward. Have a listen. As we move off fossil fuels, we should only be using Canadian fossil fuels till 2050, which means shutting off imported oil from coming into Canada from Venezuela, Kazakhstan, the United States, Saudi Arabia. We will use domestic oil and gas and diesel as long as we are using them. We'll also build up a massive infrastructure for biodiesel produced from not crops grown to produce a bioethanol, but from used existing sources of used vegetable oil. That is Elizabeth May talking about her ideas this week, but we wanted to get some reaction to it. I mean, is this feasible? Is this something Canada could do? Is this something we should be doing? So we thought we would ask uh, Catherine McKenna, who's the Federal Minister of the Environment and Climate Change and joins us now to talk more about this. Thank you for being here. Great to join your show. What did you think about what Elizabeth May had to say? Uh, well, I look, I have lots of good conversations with Elizabeth May, and, and we get, you know, we have discussions about different ideas. I, I will say it was a bit surprising to hear this. 
uh, suggestion. I mean, look, we need to figure out solutions for Canada. We do have a, a climate plan in Canada that we negotiated with provinces and territories and Indigenous peoples that we're working hard on, and we're always looking at new opportunities, including doubling the amount of nature we protect. Um, we just announced uh, $30 million with Bill Gates for Breakthrough Energy Coalition for Breakthrough Technologies. I mean, the, the thing, I mean, I think you need to really, when you put these ideas on the table, you need to really think about them hard. I mean, one of the challenges with that is that it seems to lead to the idea that you would have more pipelines because if you're going to get a product, it would have to have a pipeline out east. And I don't know how much of an appetite there is for that. Um, or I guess you're looking at shipping um, you know, shipping fossil fuels by train, and we all know what happened to Mac-Megantic, that pipelines, you know, properly done are actually safer. So I'm not entirely sure. I mean, it's good to have different ideas on the table. I mean, my focus really right now is implementing the climate plan that we negotiated with provinces and territories and holding provinces and territories to account for what they committed to. So right now we've seen the Conservative Party um, conservative leaders uh, across the country, uh, premiers that are backpacking on commitments. They want to do less on climate change. They want to make it free to pollute. Doug Ford, first thing he did was cut our price on pollution and then cut energy. Well, he, he ended it and then he cut all these energy efficiency programs that were saving people money. He also uh, cut the budget for environment, their environment ministry. He cut uh, investments to deal with flooding and forest fires and trees. We had Jason Kenney just last week talking about climate change being the flavor of the month. Um, he's also said he's going to remove their price. Well, he brought in legislation to take away their So the first thing I think we need to do is actually do what we all said we were going to do as a country. We made a climate plan. We negotiated for a year. And then we need to be more ambitious. And today I'm very excited because I'm with Tamara Vrooman. She's the head of Van City um, in Vancouver. Um, and Stephen Dubot, who's a leading environmentalist in Quebec, and they're, they're providing a report to the finance minister and me about how do we do more in the transportation sector? How do we do more with the way we build? Um, we have the zero emission um, vehicle and, incentive, so $5,000. If you're looking at a new EV, it's $10,000 here in BC when you add the BC incentive and more energy efficiency in our homes, retrofitting buildings, which creates jobs for contractors. I'm just, I'm curious though, like I know there's lots of good things going on and BC is definitely mm -hmm. a part of all that, but this idea of using only Alberta oil, isn't that also a benefit for Alberta? Would that not help perhaps bring them along on some of these climate incentives if we made that emphasis? Well, as I say, I just don't know the details of this proposal. Does it, does Elizabeth May support building our pipelines? I mean, I think that that's the question, um, because you have to get it out of Alberta. And as we've seen, there are major challenges to, to do that. And we, you know, we believe that, that we're working hard on the Trans Mountain expansion, which requires the, the twinning of the Trans Mountain pipeline. But we've got to do that in the right way. We're now working on consultation and engagement with Indigenous peoples, 100 communities. That has to fit within our climate plan. Um, the hard cap on emission in the oil sands, critically important. Also, the investments that you've made in oceans protections. That, you know, that we need to be thoughtful as a country and really figure out, okay, how do we bring folks together? Um, so, yes, I'm certainly focused on how do we transition, including how do we help support folks in Alberta who want to take action on climate change, most of the folks I talk to, but also want to make sure that they have a job and that life is affordable. And that's, that's across the board. That's, every, that's what I hear in downtown Vancouver. That's what I hear um, if I go to, you know, the, the Arctic or if I go to my riding of Ottawa Centre. Okay, but clearly then there's arguments in different parts of the country, right? Like there's one argument here in BC, it's another argument in Alberta. Uh, how do you win over the people then in places like Alberta and Ontario who are skeptical? Well, look, I mean, I, I, I talk to conservatives. If we're talking about people, I have people in my family who are conservative. I have friends who are conservative. I talk to people who, you know, are, are conservative, but they still want action on climate change. Um, they also care about jobs and the economy. And that's what we need to be showing, that we are thoughtful, that we have a plan for the environment, but also a plan to, to, for the economy. And I think it's really conservative politicians that are playing games. Okay, what but, are they saying? They don't seem to understand that climate change is having a huge impact, that we're now 
paying that the property damage has gone up 500 percent. But Minister McKenna, that sounds like electioneering. And that's obviously what you're going to be talking about leading up the election. But when it comes to this particular plan, were you not interested in hearing more from the Green Party about this, about whether or not this could work, about other solutions? Yeah, as I say, we are interested in all solutions and we'll be putting forward our platform as well. But right now, I mean, as environment minister, we're focused on implementing what we committed to. Um, That's a plan that includes more than 50 different measures across all sectors. Um, It includes also rebuilding trust in our environmental assessment system. So if you're going to talk about building new pipelines, you need to have a proper process that you can do proper, serious environmental assessments on major projects like pipelines. Unfortunately, the conservatives, they want to kill that legislation. They seem to have a pipeline plan. So, look, I think there are ideas that are interesting, but I think the question that I would have for Elizabeth May, and I'll talk to her about it. I see her all the time. We, in fact, are on the swim team together. There's a parliamentary swim team. But how are you going to get the product from Alberta across the country? Is she talking about building pipelines? Because that is not very, you know, there are complications. But if you could make the argument to say, listen, this pipeline is for Canadian product to be used in Canada only, isn't that a different argument than we need this to sell the product overseas? Uh, Look, as I say, all ideas are useful. We're certainly interested. Um, If if she is able to get Andrew Scheer um, and everyone together to have a discussion about this approach, but I'm not entirely sure that everyone's talking on the same page. But what my focus really is right now is doing what everyone, what we negotiated with provinces and territories and Indigenous peoples, which is taking action, serious and ambitious action on climate change. Um, the plan is now three years in. We're, we're implementing it across the board. Um, unfortunately, we are. And I don't think it's politics. Like, I know that you're, I, I mean, there are conservative politicians. It's just a reality who want us to do less and less, that want to backtrack on the commitments that are part of our climate plan. I don't think that's politics. I mean, it's politics on their side. We're just trying to do what we said to do, we would do with Canadians. I know. I, but again, like we're all leading up to the election. I have a feeling these are messages we're going to be hearing a lot about. But Minister McKenna, thank you for your time on this today. Always a pleasure. Thanks. That is Catherine McKenna, who is the Federal Minister of the Environment and Climate Change. Oh, I get a sense we're going to be hearing a lot of that same message over and over and over again in the next few months. So do you talk politics with your significant other? And if you do, do you two agree politically or do you find a way to agree to disagree? Well, it turns out, according to OkCupid, it might actually depend on how old you are. So OkCupid did a poll with their Canadian members, and they wanted to kind of get a take on the dating scene leading up to the federal election that's coming up this fall, most likely in October. So some of the questions that they wanted to ask people were, well, what's more attractive in a partner, exercising or exercising your right to vote. I know, funny, har-har, right? Uh, Or talking politics on a date, yay or nay. How about dating someone with different political views? Is that a red flag or is that a deal breaker? How do you approach that issue? Well, it turned out, and this is really fascinating, that the answers pretty much depended on how old you are or which generation that you belong to. For instance, 78% of, say, millennial women said that they would prefer that their dates get out and vote. But that number dropped really dramatically for women of the Generation X. Uh, That would be kind of my age. Only 11%, can you imagine? 78% to 11%, just depending on how old you were and how much that matters to you. When asked to choose what is more attractive in a partner, whether it was exercising or exercising your right to to vote, 78% of the millennial women said they would prefer that their matches get out and vote, 50% of that age group kind of really agreed with that strongly. But when you get to the Generation X, it was about 11% of them who actually agreed with that. So obviously, we wanted to talk more about this, see what this says about the dating scene here. So joining us now to talk more about this is Melissa Hobley, who's our Chief Marketing Officer for OkCupid. Melissa, thank you very much for joining us. Hey, Simi, thanks so much for having me. Have you guys Dating done... and politics. No kidding. Talk about. <laughs> uh, have you guys done this kind of survey before? Well, so it's interesting. It's even better than a survey, actually, because these are questions that we drop into OkCupid that act as filters. So 
it's a survey, but it's actually even more powerful because when you answer these questions of, hey, I would never date someone that doesn't vote, for example, um, it actually informs the algorithm and that then helps us figure out, hey, who do we show to you in Vancouver? Um, oh. so, so we have, yeah, so we have done this. OkCupid's okay, been doing this a while. It's very good at matchmaking. But what we've, what we've noticed is this unprecedented shift over the last two years, in particular in Canada, in particular in the U.S., in certain parts of Europe, where politics matters at an so that if politics matters to you, whether it's being engaged or someone who's voting or or it's it's more specific, I would like to for them to align with me on certain issues, we enable you to tur- essentially turn on those filters and it makes us better at figuring out who to show to you. And right. if, you, if you don't care about it, you're like, you know what? I don't know if I want to. You know, if I need someone that agrees with me on climate change, that's also okay. You can skip it and you don't have to even think about it. Okay, so that's really interesting then. So this isn't just a survey that OkCupid people took. This actually will inform the kind of matches that they get on the website. Exactly right. This is literally how we figure out, do we show you Mark or Brian or Samantha or Zoe? Um, This is this is how, um, so it's even more powerful because, you know, sometimes on survey, you're kind of haphazard about it. But when you're thinking about, okay, you know, do I, how important is this to me? Mm-hmm. Do I want this to matter and, and actually like part, help fuel the algorithm right. than, uh, than, than it does. Yeah. Clearly, Melissa, though, from what you found is that the mm-hmm. younger generation found it much more important when it comes to have, being on the same political page than older people did. This is exactly right. In uh, in Canada, what we thought was interesting is young women feel the strongest about this. Um, they are less likely to to um, to date across party lines. They are less likely to say, "I will not date you if you are not voting." So, a third of Canadian women are um, are. Are, will say, I don't want to vote. I'm not going. I don't want to go out with you if you've not voted. It's even higher if you're millennial women in in Canada. So it's really interesting. You know, what what we think is driving that is if you're a young woman, the stakes might feel higher on guess. issues. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And yet, if you were older, like you were saying, Generation X women, it was much lower on the list. Do you think that represents generational values then? I think it does. I think it does. And I also think I also think what you see there is a little bit of, you know, if you're if you're Gen X and so you might be in your late thirties, maybe in your forties, you are looking for someone, you may say, uh, you know, actually I you know, I know that we might disagree on politics. That's okay. Um, what matters to me more is someone I find kind and respectful of certain things, right? The younger we are, just on a whole, what we notice are some of these dating patterns. And I'm sure everyone listening probably has an anecdote of like, you know, the yeah. 20-something who's like, well, I need this and this and this and this and this, right? You, the yeah. world is your oyster. And <laughs> you should be a little more specific about about what you want. And you might be a little more fired up about certain causes or issues. And so that's going to impact the way in which you're dating and how you're choosing people. I do wonder as well, though, that was the proliferation of so many dating websites too, that I've seen this with people that I know who've used the dating websites is that they expect an instant connection, right? If you've gone to the trouble to kind of survey these people online before you go out with them, you expect to tick all of these boxes and maybe they just, there's that chance meeting of somebody that you're going to have to work things out with just isn't as common anymore. You know, it's really interesting, and you're right. There is, with with some of the younger daters in particular, there's this expectation of, oh, that sounds great, uh, you know, the, we're going to hit it off right away. Yeah. And the reality is dating apps, um, and OkCupid in particular, you know, we do a really good job of saying, hey, we think you guys have some things in common. We think you have some stuff to talk about. You're both really into Game of Thrones. You know, you're both... Yeah, um, you're work both from that. Start fans, from there. Whatever, yeah. right. Yeah, start from there. But we... Dating apps cannot tell you if there's going to be chemistry. They cannot tell you that. They can. They but, can you, but you may have chemistry, Melissa, with somebody that you disagree with politically. This is the thing that I don't understand. Are we? Yeah. Dis- is the younger generation dismissing that entirely? Because you may find that other than politics, 
everything else is a match. You may find that, but you know, the, the, I'll, I'll say two things about that. I, I think that could be true. You know, and there's like the James Carville, Mary Matlin. Example, yeah, right? like, great example. Seen pop, right? I love that couple. We've seen couples that, you know, are on opposite sides of the spectrum that are, even Kellyanne Conway, her husband is a, you know, a vocal Democrat. She obviously works for President Trump. So we know that it works. But what I'll say is this. Well, I, I really like this trend, and I like it because the, the, the trend of, hey, politics and issues matter to me. Um, and the reason why I like it is because millennials have gotten a really bad rap. You know, they're lazy, they're solo, they're so appearance. They, they're the Instagram generation. They're all about how they look and putting out this persona. And what I, what I really love about this trend is, is we're seeing that they care about a lot more than that. And they... We know we say voting is the new six pack. Um, you know they want to know what you care about and what gets you going, and and uh, and that's a beautiful thing. And what we, we see a lot of people do, including these younger daters, is you don't have to agree with me on immigration, but I need to know that like we can have that debate over over sangria or beer or whatever it may be. Um, what I what I'm not interested in is someone who's just apathetic and is not engaged in what's yeah. going on in the world. Um, Right. So, uh, so, so interesting. We, you know, we like the trend for, for that reason, um, among others. So interesting. Listen, Melissa, thank you so much for joining us. Hey, thank you so much for joining us. And listen, if you want to find your person, whether you care about politics or not, OkCupid is free. <laughs> so, so try it. We, Good plug. We're one of our biggest cities. So. <laughs> Good plug on that. Thanks, Melissa. Thanks so much to me. All right. That's nice. Melissa Hubley, who's the chief marketing officer for OkCupid. Well, there is more not great news for BC's housing market, according to a new report from Central One Credit Union. Now, their report came out this morning, and it says that sales will continue to decline over the next two years. Uh, We're going to find out why that is. And Brian Yu joins us now, the Central One Deputy Chief Economist who worked on this. And Brian, thank you so much for joining us. Good afternoon. Glad to be here. So tell me first about your predictions. Why is the market going to decline for the next two years? Yeah, well, so we're we're seeing some ongoing uh, weakness uh, in 2019 uh, from after uh, substantial drops last year as well. Uh, what we really have here is a, uh, I think what we see is a policy-driven uh, drop in the overall uh, market, uh, the combination of a number of, of events, such as the federal stress test, but adding on to that um, or more localized factors, such as the speculation tax, the uh, various foreign buyer tax, and other property taxes that have been added to that as well. Um, so we currently have this, this this uh, relatively um, slow market environment that is starting to drive the uh, declining prices um, in the market. Okay, so that's a little bit different from what we've been hearing from other places too as well. I think there was a kind of fingers crossed that things would go for another year, but you're saying two years. Yeah, so I think in terms of the the pricing conditions, uh, we are actually expecting to see the housing sales environment start to pick up uh, into 2020. So the we are near i think the the bottom of the of the sales flow over the or the the trough of overall sales and we'll start to pick up but they're still going to be really soft in the environment um when we're looking at the housing prices uh we still see a buyer's market uh, not only in the detached market but also uh in the condo market as well as we have a lot of uh, supply coming on stream uh and that's going to put ongoing pressure on um on the, the various um, price points Okay, so then would do you think the market is out there in terms of potential buyers? Or are they just kind of sitting on their hands at this point? Yeah, I think that when we look at the economy, look at the fact that unemployment rates are very low, um, job uh, the job market is still churning out uh, employment and migration is positive. There's still a lot of buyers out there. Um, they have, of course, been sidelined, I think. Um, when we look at the the federal stress test in a market like Vancouver, where it's already very high priced, um, that could knock up to about 20% off of their purchasing power. Um, so those individuals who would like to buy um, just can't get financing at this point in time. So they need, now need to wait. They need to wait for uh, to save up higher down payments. They need prices to decline, and they need higher wages uh, to allow them to um, to offset some of that um, that uh, negative shock. Right. So when you say two years, things might pick up, what would it take to get things to pick up? Well, I think there's going to be a number of factors. Just that the fact that the home prices are declining uh, will start to attract more buyers into the market. You see mortgage rates starting to fall off as well, and that's uh, providing a little bit of an impetus for affordability. But any increase that we're seeing is still not going to be uh, a very strong market by any means. We're, we are looking at about um, sales rebounding 
by about 11, uh, 11% next year into 2020, um, but that's only to 33,000 units. That's compared to 47,000 in 2017. So the sales environment still remains quite weak, um, and prices, as they, as they decline, though, will start to attract more buyers. So are some segments, do you think, Brian, weaker than others? Um, well, I think at the current time, um, the detached market has seen the biggest shock mm-hmm. or negative uh, downturn, and especially in, I think, in those luxury home markets, the higher price points, West Vancouver, Vancouver West, uh, those have been the uh, the areas that have seen the biggest drop-off, and really a testament, I think, for the, 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 the buyer's taxes and the various speculation taxes uh, overall. But as we move forward, I think that the um, condo markets are going to uh, start to slow uh, and will continue to slow. Um, we have a, a high number of units that are under construction in the new home side. Uh, and at some point, those are going to complete. And uh, my view is that uh, a fair number of these will be investor-owned and put back on the market. So would you say it's both sides here? Like you said, sellers are kind of holding on because they want a certain price and buyers are having some trouble too because they're not necessarily qualifying. So it's kind of both sides are having an issue. Yeah, and, and I think that's really uh, reflective in the very low sales. So the sales environment is probably the lowest uh, since about 08, 09, without there being an actual economic recession or economic downturn. Um, so a lot of the sellers who may want to sell, they don't have to uh, uh, pull the trigger on a sale. They can sit it out. Um, right. th- their jobs are relatively safe given the current economy, and they just kind of uh, will bide their time. There are always going to be buyers who want to sell or have to sell, those looking to uh, move, those looking uh, to um, to either uh, move, change homes and get a bigger place. Um, so there's always going to be churn. But again, I think most of them have to have that option. So is that, do you think, is that what makes this one unusual, this particular downturn, because it isn't tied to an overall economic downturn? Uh, yeah, and I, and I think what that's going to drive is also potentially in the future, at least, uh, some uh, pent-up demand that's going to emerge. We have uh, ah. a number of, um, obviously, people are still flowing into the area. They need to be housed somewhere. Uh, there is that that little bit of a, of a excess in terms of the potential new home side that's currently being built. But over time, that also uh, will also dissipate. Um, and once these, I think, developers are going to be pulling back on housing starts as well, uh, you know, maybe three years down the road, that we are going to come back and, and see a, a little more of a, of, a, of a shortage in terms of supply. Right. So you're saying that, that that supply out there, the people who want to buy but aren't doing it yet, that there eventually will be enough of a pent up demand to kind of get things going again. Right. And what they, again, they need are those uh, certain conditions. They have to either, uh, they'll be waiting for prices to decline, but they're also building up their own down payments uh, more uh, further and also waiting for wages to grow as well. Is this happening in any other jurisdiction or is this a unique BC situation? I think that given the uh, the pricing points, especially in the Metro Vancouver, it's uh, we have seen a bigger impact as a result of the of the stress test. There are much higher price points here um, than in other areas. Um, you know, price uh, overall sales conditions have also uh, dropped off considerably in Kelowna area and some of the uh, urban markets, partly because they are tied in some level due to recreational demand and retirement demand to Metro Vancouver. Uh, but again, there's also the other factors like the speculation tax and other ones that are somewhat unique to the uh, the BC environment. Right. And you also mentioned that the impact this is having on the rental market, which is interesting because usually it's like a ladder, right? And I guess the ladder is not moving the way it used to. Yeah, I think in the rental market, it's still tight. Um, it's been a, a tight market for a number of years now. And as we see uh, a number of uh, people staying in the market, um, you know that, that is going to continue to put uh, a lot of pressure, at least demand, on uh, the rental stock. Um, in, in the short term, I think that uh, some of these measures, uh, tax measures, will lead to or have led to an increase in a privately owned supply of investors looking to rent out their units. Um, but at some point, um, some of these individuals just may n- end up selling their units anyways. Uh-huh. So there is some potential uh, longer term issues in terms of whether we're building enough, going to be really building enough rental supply. Right. So you see the people who are selling now then, Brian, are the ones who kind of, they have to sell. Um, yeah, I think some people, especially if you're looking at it through the lens of those who are investors, uh, you know, they are seeing a declining market and they're willing to cut their losses. But for a lot of individuals, I think that they are sitting on the sidelines. And again, it's a it's a testament to the low sales environment, um, because if they were cutting their prices or willing to, we would see higher sales. Aha. OK, Brian, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. Have a good day. So interesting. That's Brian Yu, who's the Central One Credit Union Deputy Chief Economist. They have their report that came out this morning.
All right, let's talk some food, shall we? I know it's Tuesday, so unusual for us, but we had to do it today because it's the only day that our guest actually takes off from work, right? Nice. It's true, though. You're blaming it on me. Possibly true, yes. It is true. Robert Clark is with us, chef and owner of the Fish Counter on Main Street. It's the one day where you're closed, so we could get you in here instead of having you on the phone. Yes, and of course, I enjoy coming down and seeing you in person. How many years now have we been doing this? Meeting? 15, 16? We've known each other a long time. A long, long time talking about food, right? Uh, Let's talk about spot prawns. Is this the time? It's the season. It is the time to be talking about spot prawns, buying spot prawns, and enjoying consuming spot prawns. And how big, how long is the season? Well, it it changes. The DFO uses what they call the spawner index to determine when uh, the fishery should shut down. And that essentially means there's catching too many males and not enough females, essentially. Um, and that's when they determine the fishery are close. Uh, 10, 15 years ago, it used to be six to eight weeks. Now it's down. Last year was a short year, but it's down to, say, we're hoping four or five. When we, when we say we, I mean me. I don't know what the fishermen hope for. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah, four or five weeks, six weeks. I remember you were the one who taught me about spot prawns all those years ago on City Cooks because you. I remember you said that it used to be that they just got shipped overseas and we didn't enjoy them here locally. Well, we, we didn't have an opportunity to enjoy them here locally from a, from a hospitality point of view because all the quality was exported. And it took a lot of, I think, um, courage isn't the right word, but it, it took a lot of gump for... You know, fishermen, a guy like Steve Johansson, say, "Okay, you know what? We're uh, organic oceans. We're gonna we're gonna uh, purchase a uh, a prawn license, and we're gonna be committed to to selling those spot prawns locally." And of course, that was the birth of uh, the Chef Table Society's uh, Spot Prawn Festival, and the rest is history. Now. Yeah, no kidding. What do you yeah. love about them? I love that they're local. I love that they're sustainable. I love that they're tasty. They're and so I, sweet. Yeah, sweet, succulent, and and. It, it's it's just so much more rewarding. Anytime you taste something good compared to something just mediocre or crap, it, it, it's it's good. It's good for the soul. And spot prawns, you don't need many. They some you know they are considered to be quite expensive, but you're, they're not. Their value is much better. It's much better to spend twenty dollars on four spot prawns than four dollars on twenty crappy farm tiger prawns from Southeast Asia. I know you believe that. Is that an argument though that you still find you have to make with people out there? Not. I have wonderful customers. I oh, I know you I got a lot of regular customers. Yeah, yeah. I don't. Uh, the whole. I think we. I think over the last twelve years or thirteen years. Um, uh, with uh, especially using the the spot prawn festival as a tool, uh, the education and the understanding of how to handle spot prawns is uh, much more prevalent in to the average consumer. We know not to buy dead ones. We know that you, you know it's better to. We all know that, right? I hope well, so. Well, that's kind of what we're having here today <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to make sure people know. You know, that. you you buy a spot prawn only by one of one of three ways. Either if it's got a head on, it better be moving and it better be strong, and you shouldn't be able to keep it in your hand, and then you want to kill it or cook cook it or kill it. Uh, by just the tails or frozen. You know, the frozen spot prawns are they freeze well and they're they're great all. All yeah. year long. So if people are like having spot prawns, they're like, wait a minute, I had spot prawns like a couple months ago. You're having frozen spot You're prawns. You're having frozen spot prawns, yeah. Or uh, there, there could be some from um, Oregon or like U.S. Right. The U.S. opening is different than ours, so it's it's possible to have fresh ones. How But big ours are they? is the celebration. How eight, big, like ten, a- eight, ten to the pound, twelve to the pound. The interesting. Do you know the evolution of of no, spot? Mo- do tell. Uh, do tell. Well. <laughs> <laughs> the interesting thing <laughs> about them is, is they're all me. they're all born males, and they're all born yeah they're all born males. Huh. So they they hang out for a couple of years, small and male like. Then year two, year three, they uh, they transform into females. Uh, they all transform into females. All or that all that year class. Okay. Um, uh, they they turn into females. They have eggs. They lay their eggs, and then we uh, then they die. So our fishery is set up, my understanding, I'm not a biologist, my understanding is our fishery set up is that the, the females have already laid the eggs and now it's just a matter of hanging out before they die. So we're harvesting them after they've done their job. That's why it's considered to be one of the, oh. one of the cornerstones of why it's so sustainable to, 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 to eat spot prawns or so, spot prawns are such a sustainable shrimp. Also why it's like this very limited time of year, very right? Very limited time of year, that's right. Now... Um, You'll, you'll notice at the beginning of the year the spot prawns that are available in the market. As, as the season progresses, they get smaller. And the reason for that is is that uh, the big females drive the small males 
out of the traps. So they all go into the into the traps or into the pots to to, right. to eat, but the females kick the the males out. The males are next year's spawners. So you we don't want to be catching oh. small ones. We don't want to be catching males because they're next year's females. They have yet to convert. So they to have speak. yet to convert. They've yet to do their job, lay the eggs for for the okay. next generation. So, and that's what the DFO uses, the spawner index. They use that to determine when to close the fishery. It's not how many metric tons it was harvested or, or dates. It's, it's the when size of, yeah. it's the size of the shrimp. So, at, so they'll randomly pick a fisherman's string and, and count the males or the, the males in, in a particular catch. And I don't know what the percentage is, but when there's too many males being caught, they shut the fishery down because oh. it's next year's catch. That makes sense. Yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm impressed with that. I'm actually. impressed with that actually <laughs> to, to, too. Yeah. That we look after that yeah. so carefully. And and the the irony is in most most a lot of the problems with most species is that we, as humans we always want to take the biggest and the strongest. Right. That's very Bigger's detrimental yeah. to species, right? Because we're just making them smaller and smaller. Because we're always taking the biggest and the strongest. The reverse is true for spot prawns. You want the big ones because those are the females that have done their job. Okay, so it's like a change of thinking here. Yeah. It, it sounds like, though, this has become very successful over the last 15 years now, right? Where the Spot Prong Festival, it's like a huge thing now. The, the, the festival is, is hum- it's, it's incredible how, how popular, popular, and it has been since day one. It was set up to educate chefs because we didn't really have access to quality because the quality was always exported. Right. 90, over 95% gone. What was available to us as chefs in the local market were the crap that nobody else in the world would buy. So our impression of spot prawns 15 years ago Not was great. like, why are we getting so excited about these? That all changed with the spot prawn festival. It was about to educate chefs. Turns out everybody in Vancouver loved it, and it's yeah. it's it's much more uh, – the general public get much more excited about it so than, true. than chefs. When yeah. I see the sign now in the windows of the seafood stores, I'm like, ooh, spot prawn season. Time to go and get some. So you talked about how you're supposed to eat them. So they should be moving you said when you buy them you want yeah. to you don't necessarily want to eat them when they're moving you want to no, buy them you, if they're live in a I tank meant. you want you want them to be moving you okay. want them to be alive and you want them to be strong because you have to kill them they can't die so you either have to kill them by ripping the head off or you have to kill them by applying heat in some form because they there's an enzyme in the head that that uh, deteriorates the tail so if you get and don't buy cheap. Don't buy them on sale. Like you see spot prawns six ninety nine, and they're dead with the heads on lying on ice. Walk away because you might as well just throw that, that $6 a pound in the garbage because those are garbage prawns. They, they truly. Okay, so I just want to reiterate that. So if you think you're buying spot prawns and you're getting a good deal on them and they're still they're dead with the head on, you're saying that is not a good deal. Walk That's not away. a good deal. That's not a good deal. No. Okay, no. so let's say I bring them home. Yep. They are, I guess, in, alive in moving water. Moving around in a bag. Yeah, no, don't around. put them in, uh, well, you wouldn't transport them necessarily in water. They, they survive quite a long time outside oh, okay. of water. Fresh water will kill them within 20 minutes. I learned that the first time I tried to take them on television. The hard way. Put them, I learned <laughs> that the hard way. Was that uh, on my show? Was probably. It? <laughs> okay. Oh, I have a so bowl of dead <laughs> spot fronts. Okay, that wasn't a good idea. We're going to eat them anyway. <laughs> yeah. uh, so you bring them home, they're alive, then what? You want to cook them as quickly as possible, and if you can't do it within a couple hours, or you know that evening, let's say, um, I would rip the heads off right away. There's no point in get, letting them live three hours and then take the heads off. Either cook them with the heads on as soon as possible, or take the heads off. And if you take the heads off, they'll last in your fridge for days. Really? Yeah, yeah, yeah. How it's the hard head. Is it the to... head is the evil part of the spot <laughs> How hard is it to take the head off, though? Um, it's not it seems very quite hard. Yeah, it's it's hard to demonstrate on radio. I understand um, that, but could you just basically, maybe use your words? Uh, my vocabulary is limited <laughs> um, in any language. Um, yeah, you just you just grasp the the head just just behind where the the tail meets the head. Okay, and then you grab the and tail just... on the two actually on the two top. The spot prawn has four spots. Yeah. Grab the two at the top of the tail, squeeze and twist. Squeeze and twist. Clockwise, counterclockwise, Just does not matter. Off. Just take that off. What do you do with the heads after that? That's it? Garbage? So the No, out. no, they're great. But again, they have to be cooked right away. So if you're going to make a stock, you got to cook. Because if you put them in your fridge overnight, they'll turn black and it's it's Ew. crappy. Like it's, it's, the heads are full of flavor, but, but it, they have to be cooked Right away. Do you simmer them? Like, do you make a stock you, out of yeah, them? Yeah, you, you can do? make a stock. You can make an oil. You can deep fry them and suck the heads out. I mean, it's it's popular. Just crust them with whatever rice flour. Throw them in a deep fryer. Do you do that? 
in my, my old life, we did that, yeah. What do you mean your old life? <clears throat> when I was you're trying to be fancy. When you're... <laughs> trying to make fancy plates and... You, you don't know, do that egotistical. anymore? No. <laughs> it's just straight up? I'm, yeah. Good food? Eat it. I'm a community-orientated... Uh, I've take care about you. Take care of my... my Peeps in the your peeps on Main in your Street, neighborhood. In my neighborhood. Well, from Andrew on the line. Hi, Andrew. Hello. Um, he's a chef. Are you sure he can be nice? Uh, <laughs> no. I think so. Good. Good one, though. Good yeah. one, Andrew. Go I, I used. To, I used to always joke with Robert about playing poker. We never actually got to, but that's a whole another conversation. Bottle of wine. Okay. So um, save that for another time. You got a question for us? Yes. Uh, so I bought some spot ponds recently from. Uh, Steveston, uh, the waters down at Steveston, mm-hmm. and they were all full of eggs, and, and they were, it was kind of, we were very disappointed. Spot prawns? Um, well, yeah, that's what they were. Marking. They were yeah. labeled as. Yeah, the, it's, yeah. It's, it's illegal. So, I, I mean, having said that, a little while ago, they could, I mean, I don't, even, I don't know the logistics or the, the legalities of it, but right. essentially what we... What we say is, if you see a spot prong with with eggs on it, it has to be a U.S. product, because it is definitely one hundred percent illegal for a commercial fisherman to to have a spot prawn, maintain a spot prawn that has eggs on it. And when I've right, been fishing yeah. with the boys, I mean, the season's set up so that you don't get a lot of them. But we we if you, if you come across one, it go it gets thrown back in. So Andrew, I think you better have a little chat with the place that you bought that. Yeah, you know what? It's it's hit, it's, it's kind of like dating. It's hit and miss out there sometimes. Uh, kind of like dating. That seems like another story that we're going to have to take <laughs> up with Andrew one day. But we'll have to go to Ed here. Hi, Ed. Hello. Hi. Hi. I, uh, I uh, got to have some great memories of spot prawning up the Sunshine Coast, and I was laughing when you were talking. How do you take the head off a spot prawn? I had then a four-year-old daughter. She was four years old. Now she's in her twenties. You can teach a four-year-old to do it safely where you... Make so you're saying you if you can do that, then I could do it? If you could teach your four-year-old? No, it's just a great memory <laughs> of teaching your four-year-old how to take the, oh. the heads off the spot prawns. And then you throw the heads over to a bucket, and then you use those heads for your Dungeness crab. Mm. You're out, You're hunting for or scavenging for Dungeness crab. And the best part was we went out with a neighbor, and he had this great little boat, and it was called Pretty Ugly, the boat. So, I love that. Yeah, Robert loves that. He thinks that's a great. Do you have a question for us? Ed? <laughs> I love the fact he doesn't have a question. No, he just wants to reminisce. The best way to cook spot prawns I like is garlic, white wine, and mm. then uh, I like to. And I know Robert probably doesn't like it, but a little uh, garlic butter to dip them into with a little French bread. All right, let's find out what Robert does like. What do you yeah, think about no, that? Yeah, no, no. I think that the dipping in a little bit of garlic butter with French, crusty French bread, you Listen, can be better. But I have, to, I have to disagree. The best way to cook a spot, if you're going to spend the money on a spot prawn, the, the best way to like to cook it and then when you eat it, go, wow, now I understand why I bought a spot prawn yeah. is simply just like making tea. Just simply pour boiling, but it would be salted, boiling salted water over the prawns. Let it sit for 30 seconds. Take it out. The water is still warm. Peel it, eat it, and you'll go, oh, my God. Okay, now I remember. <clears throat> I just had a very vivid memory. That's the way the first time I <laughs> ate them because you did that for us. And I could not believe because it makes them – well, they don't have that tough consistency of cooked it's prawns. It's just succulent. Yeah. I'm a one-hit wonder. It's my only recipe. Is that that's it? So, that's, that's not even a recipe. That's, it was salted I know, water. Like, no, what are you talking about? <laughs> it's so good, though. Can you it's recommend so something else no, to go with No, you can do them? that. Yeah. No. Just stand there and eat but them But I mean, like throwing that? them, if they're alive and the heads are on and stuff and you get them home, I'd throw them on the barbecue. Again, don't put oil or things on them because it'll just spit up and burn and, and flare up and stuff. Just throw them on the barbecue, put up the... Put down your lid if it's got a lidded barbecue. Yeah. Cook them for 30 seconds to a minute. So that's, that's critical then, right? Because I think some people <clears throat> probably believe that you need to cook them for longer than that. Uh, most likely, yes. But that makes the tails, that makes the tails per- perfect. Uh, I dare say that if I was to be interested in consuming the heads, I would cook the heads longer. But this is about the tail meat. This is about the, the, the okay. piece de la resistance mm. is 30 seconds so if no you more. cook them with the head on, yes. right, yes. and then afterwards you go to eat the tail, yummy. What do you do with the heads at that point? Well, I make stock or soups. Yeah, yeah I make stocks or soups or, or whatever with them. But I mean, if if you're at a table and everybody's 
peeling prawns and eating them and spitting all over the you know the yeah. garbage after that. Then what are you going to do with them? Robert says. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so you yeah. don't like do the spot prawn like fettuccine or like all these other recipes that you see people do? With, you just keep it simple. For, for spot prawns, unlike probably anything else that I I've had the opportunity to to enjoy and work with over my career, they're one. It's one of the few things that. As is. Like, I mean, my whole basically career was based on doing as little as possible to something, just buying the best and doing as little as possible right. to it. But you're still doing something to it. With spot prawns, just a little bit of heat and and, and enjoy them for what they are is 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 my favorite way, right? If I if oh. I if I want to do a shrimp dish with uh, if I want to do a shrimp dish, whether it's then I can talk about other species that I prefer more than right. spot prawns. But, but that's do, not the show. <laughs> no, the show today we're talking spot prawns. Spot prawns. We'll have to yeah. come bring you back on another Tuesday to talk yeah, about yeah, all that exactly. other stuff. So if we were to tell people to go and visit you at the fish counter, you're going to have spot prawns for everybody? Uh, not for everybody, Well, no. to sell? Like you'll have some? Yeah, no, well, we get, give we, them away. Well, yeah, we get in X amount of pounds every day, and we keep them alive in our tank throughout the day to see who wants live ones, and then we kill them all at the end of the night uh, before we go home. I need to really come visit you before closing time on some days. So that they're already detailed? Or they're already, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. All the work's been done. And we always have some in the case that uh, have been killed. Like, there's just the tails in the case. Okay. What's yeah, the address? This isn't a promotion about Rob. I, this I'm is still a promotion doing that. I want to send prawns. people to your business no. because you're my friend. So what no, is your... going to be a thousand people lined up for spot prawns. I'm oh, going to have enough for the ten. <laughs> Uh, the fish counter okay. on Main, Main Street. Street. Yeah. yeah. No, you yeah. still want to tell them where it is? I don't. It's twenty second in Maine. Somewhere around there. Thirty. I don't know. Thirty eight. Twenty five. Twenty five. Go and 38, visit him. He's got your spot prawns or check them out somewhere. Robert, thank you. Uh, you're very welcome.